Well, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And um, I, uh, I want to encourage you this morning that every time uh, God's Word is preached, something supernatural takes place. Um, so wherever you're at, God is... Uh, God has got a supernatural work that he wants to do. I mean, you think about it. The Bible opens with, God said, let there be light. And in that speaking, God created. Uh, he created the heavens and the earth and everything that we see and all around us. And the Apostle Paul uses that very analogy for salvation. The gospel lets light shine into the darkness as God speaks faith comes by, by hearing. And so that's what the Lord wants to do in your life this morning, even from an Old Testament wisdom book. Now, we're back, we're back to Ecclesiastes after several weeks. And, and, and I'll have to say, as always, God meets us right where, right where we're at. Since it's been a few weeks, let me remind you of Solomon's theme. Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. And along with the, the three others... It provides guidance to us while we, while we live outside of the garden. Proverbs teaches us wise living in general areas of life. Job shows us what to do when life doesn't fit in a nice, neat little proverb. Song of Solomon comes along and teaches us how to live wisely in a marriage with another sinner. And then Ecclesiastes gives us particular wisdom for, for a fallen world. When Adam and Eve sinned, God cast them out of the garden, and life outside of the garden is very different from, from inside. Spiritual death was immediate, physical death was gradual, but creation was subjected to a curse. And since the fall, there are things that are crooked that cannot be made straight. Frustration and futility is normal, and death is the end for, for us all. Physical death, that is. Spiritual life, if you're in Jesus Christ. But because of that curse, we need God's wisdom to find meaning. And, and Solomon calls us to, to the good life in, in, in his book. In his grace, God has not left us without, without guidance and good things to enjoy in Jesus Christ. And one day, God promises He'll remove the curse completely. But until then, meaning and purpose are only found in, in Him. And so if you're outside of Jesus Christ, you're going to experience a lot of futility, a lot of frustration, a lot of meaninglessness, a lot of purposelessness. But in Jesus Christ, you can find the opposite. In fact, Solomon has been showing us for the first six and a half chapters that fulfillment, looking for fulfillment without God is, is futile. Or to use Solomon's words, it's vanity and vexation. Solomon methodically proves that to us in the first six chapters. In the second half of the book, which is the half that we're in, Solomon shares with us God's wisdom for, for a fallen world. And chapter 10 is, is, is toward the tail end of that, that wisdom section. Ecclesiastes is like God's memory aid. It helps us recover the knowledge that, that we lost in the fall, like with everything that Satan does. He's a, he's a liar. So he promised Adam and Eve that they would be wise 
if they disobeyed God, but, but in fact, it was just the opposite. So, so Ecclesiastes helps us with a capacity that we don't have anymore. We have to look to God for that wisdom, and the Lord provides it in this, in this book. So since chapter 7, Solomon has shown us in the second half what, what is truly good. In chapter 6, where wisdom comes from in chapter 7... He's taught us about wisdom's limitations in chapter 8. In chapter 9, he gave us wisdom about living the good life in real life. And today, Solomon is going to show us that there are two ways to live, but only one place to, to trust. There is the way of wisdom and the way of folly. But there's only one confident place to, to rest your spiritual head. The Bible often compares and contrasts things to help us to, uh, to, to see clearly which one we should choose. And that's exactly what Solomon is doing in, in chapter 9 and chapter 10. He's, he's comparing and contrasting wisdom and folly. He's expounded the excellence of wisdom that we should pursue in chapter 9. And now he explains the errors of folly, the ones that we should avoid in, in chapter 10. You might think of that contrast with the opening to the Psalter, Psalm 1, presents two paths to life, doesn't it? There's the, the path of sinners, and then there's the way of, of righteous. Or, or you might think of, of the Sermon on the Mount, where, where Jesus uses this method in his invitation. It's a very common technique in, in wisdom literature. As the winds around the Sea of Galilee were, were humming just as I am, Jesus says there are two gates, a, a wide one and a, and a narrow one. There are two trees, one that bears good fruit and, and one that bears bad. There are two foundations to build your life on. There, there's the one of, of the rock, a solid foundation, and the sand. And in Ecclesiastes 10, Solomon says there is a wise way to life and a foolish way to life. The way of wisdom and the way of folly. Two ways to live, but I'll show you in the end, there's only one place that you can trust. And so for 20 verses that Jesse read for us, Solomon contrasts foolishness to the wisdom that he's already given. There are actually five sections of chapter 10, and that's the way we'll break it down. All have the same overarching theme. There are five examples of folly that a that a wise person should avoid. Five examples of folly that a wise person should avoid. He starts with folly in the, in the generic. He starts with folly in the generic. Then folly in government in verses 4 through 7, followed by folly in general living in verses 8 through 11, and then folly in the governed in verses 16 through 20. Five examples of folly that a wise person should avoid. Let's look at the first one. There's the example of folly in generic terms in verses 1 through 3. Look, if you would, at verse 1. There's the example of folly in generic terms. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. Solomon begins here by giving us a generic example of foolishness to, foolishness to show us how potent, uh, how potent it is. 
the intro to this entire section begins in Ecclesiastes 9, 13, with, a, with the better than statement. Look at the, or uh, 9, 18, I should say. Look at Ecclesiastes 9, verse 18. How 9 ends and 10 begins. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Solomon tells the story of, a, of one poor man who, whose wisdom fends off a, a great king. And he reminds us of a similar power, which resides in the opposite direction. He says, wisdom is better than weapons of war. Wisdom is stronger <clears throat> than a mighty king, but one sinner destroys much good. You see the contrast there? Godly wisdom can bring great success, but great destruction can also come from a little foolishness. A little godliness, a godlessness, a dash of folly, a pinch of human wisdom can destroy great things, the Bible says. And Solomon uses a common scenario in a universal past, a fly, to help make his point. That's what he's talking about in verse 1. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. In Solomon's day, a daily bath was not the norm, and, and people had to deodorize in other ways. If you've ever traveled outside of the West and been in close quarters, you understand the issue that this creates. There was no secret deodorant or Axe body spray in Solomon's day, so fragrant oil was utilized. And the more fragrant the oil, the, the, the greater the value. And, and the perfume was made by infusing a fragrance into olive oil, and then the person would apply that, drip it on their head or their beard or their, or their body. Solomon is saying here in verse 1, imagine if you had a very valuable container of this fragrance, and you, you opened the flask, you breathed in deeply... And what you waft was something between frankincense and fly, or decomposed meat and myrrh. It, you probably wouldn't like that smell too well. You probably wouldn't like your French perfume smelling like a Frenchman's armpit, or, or your Old Spice smelling like old shoes. That's basically what Solomon is, is saying here. Just like a single fly who gets stuck in the, in the bottle of perfume... While that fly is a little creature, it can ruin the whole batch. And a little foolishness in life can, can ruin it all. A little foolishness leavens a whole loaf of a wise man's dough. And you understand that, that, that well. But you and I need to be reminded of it often. We need to be reminded that it's a lot easier to tear something down than it is to build it in the first place. We need to be reminded it's a lot easier to poke holes in an argument than to make a good one yourself. We, we need to be re, retold over and over again that once the toothpaste is squeezed, you can't get it back in the tube. Do you have a good testimony? It only takes one bad decision to ruin it, doesn't it? One small act of indiscretion can ruin a lifetime of virtue. That's why a little imprudence weighs a lot more than a ton of wisdom. That's why your mama said uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of, of cure because one word, one act, one night, one decision can ruin something that it took a lifetime to build. So be careful with the worldly lies like that, that says just a little won't hurt or, or just once won't kill you. It actually could. It could destroy everything that you've built your life to, you've used your life to, to, to create. And Solomon reminds us the, 
that indiscretion originates from within, from a disposition. Look at what he says in verse 2. A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. It's still within the first point. The wise man's heart, wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but a foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Now, that's not a Republican bumper sticker, although it would be a good one. In the Bible, the right hand was considered a place of honor, a the good place. And, and Solomon's point is the fool goes in the opposite direction. The wise go toward God and the fool goes to the opposite direction. A fool, in a biblical sense, is not someone who is slow mentally. I mean, you understand, this folly is not IQ-based. It's morally scored. It's, it's someone who lacks the proper fear of God, but therefore they see no need of Him. Solomon says, a fool's navigational beacon directs him off course, and that comes from, from within. Notice, if you will, in verse 2, Solomon talks about uh, the right and the left, but he never mentions feet or walking. He mentions the heart. Verse 2. A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but a foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Both type of people. They have an internal compass. They're guided in their heart, in their inner person. Phil Riken said, most Christians can discern good from evil. They, we know when something's morally right and something's morally wrong, but we have greater trouble between wisdom and folly. The applicational areas. I mean, you know that, that murder is, is sin, but how do you apply the, the Bible in a specific area? Which is why you have to keep your heart centered on Christ and, and His Word. Practicing righteousness is what develops discernment. If you stop reading your Bible or focusing on the gospel, you will still be able to see right and wrong, black and white, but, but you'll likely misapply it through critical judgments of others. If you get spiritually distracted as a believer, you'll not apostatize immediately. You'll compromise in areas of wisdom. Things that might be lawful but, but are not profitable. Things that you may have avoided before out of love for Christ will, will be allowed in. You see how that works? A wise man's heart directs him toward God and a, and a fool's heart draws him to the opposite direction, the opposite side. And the scary thing is, is that they don't even know that it's happening. Look, if you would, at verse 3. Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking. And he demonstrates to everyone, or he says to everyone, he is a, he is a fool. Have you ever watched TV and uh, you hear some expert speak and you listen to them and you say to yourself, there's no way that anyone could be that ignorant? Maybe you've listened to a Christian rationalize their sin that they would have never done before. A position that they now take that they would have never taken before. And you think, I mean, can they really be that blind? Solomon says, yes, they can. They can be that ignorant and a Christian can be that blind. And if you listen to them long enough, they'll tell you that they are. That's what he's saying here in, in, in this verse. The way of the foolish is so senseless that they demonstrate a lack of awareness for everyone to see. The problem is they can't see it. 
the, the lacking sense literally is his mind is lacking. And the word demonstrate means to say either outright or with their life. It's like saying, hi, I'm a fool. Foolish people don't usually know that they're foolish. That's what Solomon is saying. They're ill-tempered, but they blindly blame everyone else for their anger. They're morally blind, but, but they say godly people are the ones who are narrow-minded. They refuse to take advice from anyone, but they call others ignorant. <laughs> they display their folly, but they declare themselves to be wise. And all of that originates from the heart. So let me ask you, are you guarding your heart? That's the center of life, not your moral choices. I mean, even an unbeliever can know what the Ten Commandments say, but only a believer has a heart inclined toward fulfilling them, a desire to do that. And you fan the flame of that desire through what you put in your head and what you focus on in your heart. Has compromise crept in where, where Christ once reigned? What's the, what direction is your heart drawn? You, you, you can tell. Toward God's wisdom or in the other direction? Is it toward the right or, or toward the left? Are you teachable and humble or are you proud? And think that you, you know it all. You should choose the wise way to live because it's better than a fool's way, Solomon says. And even when others over you are foolish... The same rule applies. You would at the second example that Solomon gives here in verses 4 through 7. There is folly in, in government. Look if you would at verse 4. The ruler's temper, uh, notice he's talking about a ruler in government. The ruler's temper rises against you. If it does, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offenses. Solomon now tells us how to respond to folly in the lives of others. He gives a general description, and now he shows folly in the lives of others. How do you respond to that? And, and boy, do we need this truth right now, don't we? In verses 4 through 7, Solomon says there's folly in government, and you say, no, really? <laughs> Solomon agrees with one of Mark Twain's frequently quoted lines, which says, suppose you're an idiot and suppose you're a member of Congress. But I repeat myself. <laughs> My apologies to those in Congress who are not idiots. God says in a fallen world, it's possible to have foolish and unqualified people in power. But you should not be foolish in your response to them. That's what Solomon is saying here. Solomon starts with folly in the form of anger, and he says a wise man does not mimic the ways of a, of a fool. That's what he's saying here in verse 4. If the ruler's temper rises against you, don't abandon your position, because composure soothes great offenses. You might hear a soft word turns away wrath, something else that the wisdom book says. Here is a government official of some kind that throws their weight around. They're clearly wrong and they're angry and that comes out in, in their life. How does a wise person respond to that? Solomon says you hold your ground and you, you, you hold anger uh, from your tongue. You don't compromise to appease their wrath, but, but you don't return foolish fire. 
you compose yourself with wisdom and then you speak with clarity and you do it calmly. It might feel magnificent to resign in Johnny Paycheck style, but one writer says it's actually less impressive and more immature than it feels. Derek Kidner said Solomon is suggesting a wise man avoids self-inflicted damage. Acting like a fool in response to a fool is not wise, Solomon says. But in a fallen world, there is no shortage of fools in power. And Solomon tells us where they come from. Look, if you would, at verse 5. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places. Notice where Solomon limits his gaze. It's under the sun. He says foolish leaders are part of the curse. Have you ever heard the phrase, if you don't vote, you'll get the politicians you deserve? I have too. I've said it a few times. Well, Solomon says, sometimes even when you do vote, you still get the politicians that you deserve as a sinner in a Genesis 3 world. Solomon says he's observed this error, the thoughtless decision of a ruler, the poor administrative oversight that hurts the people that that these leaders govern. And it's not isolated to government. Look, if you would, at verse 6. Folly is set in many exalted places, while rich men set in humble places. Bill Barrick said, too many fools sit in places of leadership. And on the flip side, those who know how to handle finances, the rich, are not guiding us. They sit in humble places. That's the idea. Things are turned upside down. And then he goes on and gives another example in verse 7. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. In Solomon's day, slaves didn't have horses and princes didn't walk. He's pointing out the contradictions that he sees in a Genesis 3 world. Things don't always turn out the, as, they, as they should, even when wisdom is, is available. Why do countless people reject the gospel whenever it's freely available to them? Is that wise? Of course it's not. Solomon's point is that you can't know when one official will rise and another will fall based solely on merit in a fallen world. And you must not forget that sometimes God allows things to get reversed for a grander purpose. Sometimes to bring himself greater glory, God allows Pharaohs to rule and his people to suffer, but he never forsakes them. Sometimes God allows Joseph to be imprisoned so he can interpret Pharaoh's dream and even rule later and save Jacob and his sons. Bill Barrick said the sinfulness of man might have brought about the situation, but, but it also might be the result of a sovereign God's guiding hand. But if you're an Israelite, or you're Joseph in a stinky prison, and you can't always see what God's doing in real time, it can be tough, can't it? That's why Solomon's writing to us. We must respond in faith when wisdom's predictable ways are altered. You're quarantined, you're cooped up, you're sick, whatever it might be, and you're thinking, I did everything right, and my business failed. I honored God, and I still got sick. Solomon is here to remind us there are two ways... To live, you should, choose the, you should choose the wise way. But you can trust God when there's an exception. He'll never fail you. 
He has a plan that you might not be able to, to see. It's a much better plan than if your business didn't take a hit or, or you weren't diagnosed. It's the, it's the same for all of us and all of life, not just in crisis. There are two ways to live, but, but you can trust God even when things get reversed. Look at this third example that he gives us here. He is an example of folly in general living. Folly in general living. Look at you at verse 8. He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. I mean, Solomon goes over several areas, general, general areas of labor. I mean, you would have done all of these things. People would do all of these things in, in Solomon's day. Common labors uh, of average workers. And Solomon lists the action first and then the, the reaction. What happens? The one who digs the pit falls into it. The one breaking down the wall can get snake bit. Uh, the one currying stone can drop it on his foot. The one splitting logs can, can endanger himself. The one chopping wood can overexert because of a dull blade. The key to what Solomon is saying here is found in verse 10. Look at verse 10. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. I mean, Solomon says in all of these situations, these general situations of life, wisdom is advantageous. But he says it takes patience to apply it. He says it takes time to sharpen a good axe, but that's a lot less energy than chopping wood with a dull one. You can dig a pit, but if you don't do it properly, it may take longer to do it properly. But if you don't do it properly, you can fall into the pit. If you're too hasty in querying stones, you, you can end up spending your time in the hospital with a broken foot, Solomon says. Derek Tidball lands a jab even closer to our own chins. He says it's the way in regular life. People want to get married and, and have a family without preparing first. Uh, People in the church, they want to lead churches and evangelize the world without being trained. You could probably add to that list. God's ways are not quick fixes. The way of wisdom is not a checklist. There's no such thing as instant sanctification. Christ-likeness is not like a bag of micro microwave popcorn. It takes time to develop spiritual muscle that can then turn into spiritual bone and then turn into to steel. Jesus Christ describes the, the Christian life as a daily walk. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Slow down, Solomon says. Be still. Spend time with Him. Learn from Him. His ways are, are wonderful. That's the way of wisdom. The way of folly is, is quick. Sprints. Because wisdom is no good if it comes too late. Look if you would at verse 11. All common days of life. He inserts this strange verse. If, if you don't connect it, you may understand what does that mean. Verse 11. If the serpent bites before being charmed, 
there's no profit for the for the the charmer. What is that? Solomon is continuing his idea of of wisdom and speed. Walt Kaiser said this verse is like saying, why lock the barn door after the cow already got out? Wisdom is no good if you don't use it first. A, a fool charges ahead unprepared. It's like saying, um, if you don't charm the, the, the serpent before it, it bites you, there's no profit for the charmer being there. If you don't use God's wisdom, if you don't apply it to, to life, what good is it? God's ways are not too early or too late. He, he's always right on time. But if you don't use God's wisdom, don't scratch your head and wonder why things turned out in a bad way. Are you in a rush? Slow down. Seek God about it. Seek counsel before you fall. Do you know what to do and you're avoided the hard stuff? Don't get snake bit by delay or failing to apply God's wisdom. Do what you know to do. And then trust God with the rest. There's another example. Number four. There's folly in grammar. If you would at verse 12. Solomon now turns to foolish speech. Words from the mouth of a wise are gracious while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly and the end of it is wicked madness. Section is all about words. It's all about foolish speech. And the Bible has a lot to say about that little muscle that is that resides between your teeth. James says it's like a little fire. It's like the rudder of a ship. It can set the world ablaze if you use it foolishly. And so it's no surprise that, that wisdom and folly address the tongue. Solomon says the tongue of the wise is selective, but the but the fool just, just rattles on, and he compares the two. The wise use gracious words. The, the foolish say things that, that destroy themselves. Solomon says fools are quite opinionated, and they tend to be big talkers. Beware of the guy that wants to always be heard. One commentator said, for some reason, a fool is seldom content to keeping his folly to himself, but he insists on sharing it with others. And I would add, many of them get nightly news shows. You heard of the term talking head? Well, Solomon says for a fool, there's nothing in the head, but they keep right on, they keep right on talking. And you could probably hear the Proverbs, uh, Proverbs here, can't you? Even a fool, when he keeps his tongue or keeps silent, is considered wise when... He closes his lips, he's considered prudent. Or Proverbs 15, 2, The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the, the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. Should be evident because the same author wrote both of these books. Solomon says the words of a wise person bless, bless others. They, they're beneficial they, and they get him ahead. Kaiser said his words are gracious in content, winsome in spirit, affectionate in appeal, and compliant and affable in, in tone. In contrast, though, Solomon says, the words of a fool work toward his own defeat and destruction. He goes from beginning to talk to talking too much to self-destruction. There's a progression here. 
And one of the things that a fool loves to talk about is the future. Look at verse 14. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen. There's the future. And who can tell him what will come after him? Fools love to talk about what they don't know. They love to talk and they love to talk about what they don't know. In particular, things that, that haven't come yet. Philip Ryken said, fools love to predict the future. Some fools have fanciful theories about global disasters. Others have big plans. And to hear them talk, they're always just one lucky break away from striking it rich or landing the dream job or fixing the ills of the, of the world. And yet James says presumption is foolishness. James 4.13, Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. And yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You know the verse. Your life is but a vapor. It appears and then vanishes away. You're not promised tomorrow. So surely you don't know what's coming many days in the future. I've read so many articles this past month about the stock market that contradict each other. I mean, one Monday and then one that contradicts it on, on Tuesday, sometimes from the exact same author. I mean, the economy shot for the next five years. It's an L-shaped curve. It's a V-shaped curve. It's a U-shaped curve. There's no curve coming at all. And you can see how foolish that is when they don't even understand today. And verse 15 says, that is wearying. Look at verse 15. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he doesn't even know how to go to a city. He can't even find his, his way to where he proclaims he wants to go. Or can't even find the way to where he tells you, you need to go. Solomon says the foolish kind of per person gets even the simplest thing wrong. Derek Kidner said he would get lost even if you put him on an escalator. <laughs> he gets so worn out by his work and is prattling on, he loses his way home. He talks himself into a stupor. <laughs> Not because he works hard, but because he plays at it. Notice the shift here. I've left this under, under words, because under grammar, foolishness and grammar, because that's where it best fits. But, but notice Solomon turns the dial a little bit here in verse 15. He goes from the tongue to, to work, the toil of, of a fool. And Solomon says that they, they get lost, not because they work, but because they... They play at it. Uh, fools don't work. They, they work around. They weary themselves with everything except what they should be doing. And, and they end up just, just wandering about. Listen, I know. I've played the, the piano of procrastination many times. And the, the music doesn't soothe. I can promise you. One writer said, Merely playing at work wearies the soul. Because deep down... We know that we should be more productive than we are, and the feelings of guilt are exhausting. Have you ever felt that? You don't want to do what you're supposed to do, and so you end up finding a way to stay busy, and at the end of the day, you're, you're tired. You've done a lot, but you haven't done what you're supposed to do. And have you done the opposite? 
you bore, bore down and did what you were supposed to do, even though that you didn't want to do it. And at the end, you feel satisfied, you feel fulfilled because you've been wise. You, you, you have the promise of fruit. The wise person gets energized by working hard and the service of the Lord satisfies his soul. Don't let folly take over your tongue and laziness creep in your soul during, during the change and when your routines are off. Don't increase complaining and, and decrease Christ-like service, Solomon says. Focus on Christ. Find somebody to serve. It's one of the best ways to take the focus off yourself. And if it's still hard, just put one foot in front of the other, and then another, and then another. Because we definitely need wise people in this, in this world. Let's look at the last one. There's folly in the governed. Verse 16. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for gluttonous or drunkenness. Solomon observes and points out to you folly, the effect of folly in the governed. This fifth and final comparison is focused on the citizens of a land. In verses 4 through 7, Solomon deals with our response to rulers. And he talks about how there are fools in places of leadership. Now he deals with, with putting fools over us to begin with. What effect does that have on, on the average citizen? In verse 16, there's a woe. In verse 17, there is a, there's a blessing. Solomon pronounces a woe and a blessing here, both upon people or nations, based on their, their leaders. Woe to a land whose leaders are novices and self-serving. Blessed is a people who have noble and wise leaders. I mean, the contrast here is, a, is an immature leader and then a responsible or wise one. The word that Solomon uses here, when, for a king is a lad is the word for a child. It's like a boy king. But, but he doesn't have age in mind. He has immaturity, underdeveloped in any area. One writer said verses 16 and 17 reminds us that, that influence seeps down from the top and sets the tone for the whole church, for the whole company, for here, the whole country. Solomon shows a ruler without dignity or wisdom, surrounded by, by decadence. And he contrasts a ruler who is surrounded by responsible men, and he's wise himself. I mean, this is a call for wise government and a warning about a foolish one. In fact, in church history, this passage was preached many times by pastors to foolish kings. Politicians who rule for personal advantage bring disaster on the people that they lead. That's what Solomon says here. Woe to any nation characterized by sinful entertainment, lazy self-indulgence, and widespread abuse of alcohol and other drugs, especially amongst its nation's leaders. Phil Riken. These verses tell the story of a national disaster when someone completely incompetent is in charge. And that's possible, Solomon has already told us in a Genesis 3 world. Now, listen to me carefully about what I'm, what I'm getting ready to say. 
there is no division between pursuing Christ and promoting wise government. There's no room, there's no daylight whatsoever in the Bible between those two things. A wise man is greatly concerned about how his company, how his country, how his church is governed and the way that he rules himself, Solomon says. And so should you be. Our primary interest in eternity does not lessen our concern for applying that wisdom to the present. Solomon says a wise man seeks good government and you should not leave governing to fools. That's what, how I would summarize what Solomon is, is saying here. I know what Romans 13 says. I have preached it. I have applied it many times. We have applied it even in our circumstance right now. But you should not take Romans 13 beyond general submission to the point of disengagement. That is foolish, Solomon says. I understand all about Nero and the Romans and the damage that Republican Jesus did in blurring the lines of the gospel during moral majority and all of that. But Solomon says abandoning civics is just as devastating. And don't think submission means just going along indiscriminately or ambivalence toward wickedness. It's not. Socialism hurts people. So stand against it. Do it wisely. Don't speak foolishly or angrily. Abortion is murder. Pseudoscience that says biological gender is fluid, is wicked, it's abusive. And people are teaching that to parents that are then purporting that onto children. With our own church gatherings, what started as Romans 13 could become an Acts 5 situation if we discern our church family is being harmed, if our leaders forbid exactly what the Bible commands. Now, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 doesn't mean that we're going to have a church of 500 people gathering together, but it does mean we'll find a way to gather and worship while being wise. There is nothing rebellious about that from a biblical standpoint. It's submitting to a higher authority. In fact, if done properly, it's thoroughly biblical. Verse 18 tells us what will happen if you follow an unwise ruler too long. Look at verse 18. Through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. Solomon says, if you have fools in leadership too long, their sloth silently destroys. In fact, whenever you see foolish leaders in the Bible, it is a judgment on people. That's what Solomon is saying here. Woe unto those. And the foolish leaders that we have, wherever they're at in the world, are a judgment from God. Even generally part of the curse. But they could be specifically placed there. Solomon says, if you have fools in leadership too long, their, their sloth silently destroys you don't have to promote foolishness. You just need to neglect wisdom, Solomon says. Doing nothing is doing something. And the opposite effect is true if you're wise. Following God's ways produces good fruit. Look, if you would, at verse 19. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment. Wine makes life merry. Money is the answer to everything. What Solomon is saying there is there's a proper use for all of these things, and, and it's not the fool that has, that has a meal or a merry life 
or resources to be able to apply to, to the needs. In contrast to the fool of verse 18, the hardworking individual has everything that they need and they enjoy life. But be careful with foolish leaders. They can be dangerous, and that's how Solomon ends this whole section. Look at verse 20. Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king. And in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the, the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter unknown. Solomon is talking about someone overhearing sedition or what you might, might say. Verse 18 says bad leaders are, are demanding. Here it says they're dangerous. The verse challenges us to remain calm whenever there's immaturity and indulgence, but take extraordinary precautions when you're dealing with such people. These are not kind and gentle people, fools. Remember the compass of their heart? They're not like you. They don't have a natural, general desire to do good. They, they have an intention of doing evil. So don't forget that when you're dealing with them. You can be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove because they are snakes at heart, just like you were before the gospel. And that's how Solomon ends. Two ways to live. A wise way and a foolish way. But even if you do all these things, if you avoid folly in the generic, folly in government, folly in general living, folly in grammar, folly in the governed, even if you engage in good governing, it's still possible for a foolish person to be placed in leadership. And in that case, you have to trust God. You see, there are two ways to live. But in a fallen world, there's only one place that you can place your trust. doesn't mean that you don't avoid foolishness. You don't seek wisdom. But it means when you do what you know to do, you end, you ultimately place your trust in God, who is sovereign and who controls all things. And the one that you can't always see what he's doing. It's important because... There are times in life when it doesn't fit in a nice, neat little proverb. Exhibit A is Job. It's generally better to live with wisdom, and living wisely will often get you ahead. However, because of the curse, it doesn't always work that way. And when it doesn't, you must trust God just like Job did. Sometimes God's plan, the wise man loses power, and the witless man sits on the front, a throne. Sometimes in God's plan, His people are unsuccessful so He can bring greater gain. Sometimes in God's plan, the cross comes before the resurrection. God's sovereignty allows for rich fools and poor Christians. It permits sick Christians and healthy atheists. It, it tolerates wicked rulers and trampled saints. But in all of those times... God designs it for a greater good that you cannot always see. So you have to trust Him. Follow the way of wisdom, not folly, but trust God. You see, the choice is not just about the right way versus the, the wrong way. The choice is to trust regardless of the outcome. After the fall, wisdom is beneficial, but faith is required. 
and faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where will you turn? Solomon says, turn to God. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word. Long chapter, many verses, but clear and and compelling truth. Oh, Father, I pray, even for my own heart, that I would choose the way of wisdom, not the way of folly. I pray that I would guard my heart and that everyone would do the same thing. They would manage it. They wouldn't let little things creep in to where they would become big things. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of of dough. And yet, Father, I also pray that as we make wise decisions, we seek in our hearts to do what you would desire for us to do, that even as we do that, that we would trust in you in whatever the outcome. Father, may the outcome not be because we are ambivalent or we are lazy or we, we just go along for ease. But if we do what we know to do, We know that we can trust you with whatever comes. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.